Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We are entering into a, a study on the ninth chapter of Romans this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn there and put your finger there. But as you're doing that, I want to make some opening comments. Several months ago, three or four months ago, I pushed pause on the series that I've been working on in preaching verse by verse through the book of Romans um, since the beginning of 2010. And we have been walking through this, what I believe is the greatest letter ever written. And now we have come to Romans chapter 9. And here's what I want to say as we begin. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. This section of the Word of God is the most hotly contested the most deeply profound, the most intellectually stretching, the most faith-challenging and faith-building, and the most God-exalting three chapters put together anywhere within the Word of God. That's a lot of things that I just said there, but I'm going to try to illustrate that by just giving you a short list of the subject matters, just a few of the subject matters that we're going to come to in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. We're going to talk about the election of God. The truth and the proof that God elects some, chooses some, to eternal salvation and that He does not choose others. We're going to talk about the predestination of God in these chapters. Predestination is the way in which God carries out His electing purposes. It's how He guarantees that everyone that He elects is going to spend eternity with Him in glory. We're going to talk about Foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge. Not foreknowledge with the idea that God, who knows all things, looks down through the halls of history from eternity past and sees that you would choose Him and therefore He chooses you because you chose Him or would choose Him. Not precognition. A different understanding. The biblical, what I believe is undeniably the biblical understanding of Foreknowledge, which is really God choosing to bring you into a covenant relationship with Himself for knowing you personally. We're going to talk about the Jews in these three chapters. What Jews, what place do the Jews have in the world of today? What God has done with them in the past, what He's doing with them in the present, and that He will save them in the end, in the future. I'm going to talk about that. 
We're going to talk about the relationship in this age between the Jew and the Christian. Is the church of today, the Christian of today, do they replace the Jews of the Old Testament? Is there just been, since the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, has the church now stepped into that place of the chosen people of God and the Jews are out and the church now is in and God's just made that switch? We're going to talk about whether that's true or not. We're going to talk about the glory of God. How His glory is most fully realized, not only through displays of His mercy and grace, but also through displays of His wrath. And we're going to talk about the inscrutable ways of God. It's kind of a big word to use that word much, inscrutable. That God's ways are beyond our ways, that our little finite minds cannot fully grasp the ways and the works and the wisdom of God in His dispensing of mercy and wrath. That He is transcendent and beyond us. But that what should happen when we do catch glimpses of it as we study these deep truths is that it should cause us to rise up and worship and say, Oh God, your ways are higher than mine. And before you I humble myself in worship and praise. So those are a few of the deeper subjects that we're going to look at in the months to come as we go through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you can see why that these are the most hotly contested and deeply profound and intellectually stretching three chapters, consecutive three chapters in the Word of God. Let me just make a few comments in answer to this question, why preach on Romans 9, 10, and 11? I mean, if it really is that hotly debated in the evangelical church, the Orthodox Christian church, that kind of the centerpiece that really divides the evangelical church into two camps, why even preach on it, Brad? I think that's a valid question. Here's the answer to the question. I'll give you my Uh, deeply held conviction about the answer to that question. Number one is, I believe before, just before 2010, when I started Romans, God told me to preach through this book. So I just want to do what God told me to do. Not to say I want to preach through this part of the book and not this part, but just to preach through the book. Secondly, my job description as a preacher of the Word of God is to dispense to you, to the best of my ability, the full counsel of the Word of God. The full counsel. Not the truths that are easy and fun to hear, but also the truths that are hard and deep and at times difficult to hear. And then thirdly, I want to preach through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 because I believe when you understand 
and work through in your mind and in your heart these deep truths, what you get is a greater and more vibrant and more transcendent view of God that causes your worship and adoration of Him to take a notch up. So for those reasons and many others I could give, it becomes imperative and an act of obedience, I believe, to preach through these three chapters. I do want to say this. Just aware that, that the truths that we're going to look at are hard to grapple with and at times painful to talk about and think through, particularly if we have not done so before. I want to say to you that my goal is not to convince you of my opinion. That is not why I am up here. That's not my job. That's not my job. My goal is to just unleash the Word of God and let God do whatever God chooses to do with His Word. Just to let the lion out of the cage and let him roam So I just invite you now as we jump into Romans chapter 9 to consider this question. What place do these three chapters have within the letter to the church at Rome? And the reason I am asking and I'm going to answer that question is because among kind of the scholarly elite there is two pretty drastic opinions about why and where Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are. And one side of the theological understanding says this, that those three chapters are a unit in of themselves. They're not really in Romans where they are for any specific reason. They are just something that Paul needed to include, and so he just kind of decided to stick them in where he put them in. That's kind of one extreme side of the understanding. And the other is on the far end of that spectrum, which is where I firmly line up. And that is this, that Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are exactly where they need to be, precisely where Paul wanted them and where God, through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit, wanted Paul to put them because they are an exact perfect outflow from what he has been teaching in the first eight chapters, particularly with what he has just said in chapter eight. And so I think what I can do, if you give me about five, ten minutes, I think I can show you beyond a reasonable doubt that Romans 9 is exactly where Romans 9 is supposed to be. And again, we'll do that by looking at Romans chapter 8. What was Romans chapter 8 about? I know we're reaching back a few months here, but Romans chapter 8 opens up with a great propositional truth, and the truth is this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That those who have been saved, who have been justified, it is absolutely impossible for them ever to come into a position before God again of condemnation. Why? Because Christ has taken our condemnation. It has been fully satisfied. And if we're in Christ, 
it is impossible for us to be condemned before God. And then what he does for the next 38 verses is that he proves over and over and over and over and over again that the believer is secure in his position in Jesus Christ. It's like a diamond that he pulls out that's got several facets to it. This diamond of the security of the believer or as some doctrine or theologian state, the perseverance of the saints, that the saints are going to persevere to the end. He takes that diamond and he shows a facet of it and he polishes it up with his description and then he does that for a few verses and then he turns it and he looks at another facet of that beautiful gem. He does that all the way through Romans chapter 8. Showing over and over again the undeniable, immutable, unchanging, all-conquering reality of the security of the believer. And then let me just show you a few of the concluding statements that he makes at the end of chapter 8. And remember... The reason that we're looking at this is to show you, to prove that Romans 9 is right where it's supposed to be. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Let me read those three verses. Great, incredible, incredible summary statement here made to the elect of God. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see what he does there? All things work together for the good. Because it is regarding those who are called according to the purpose of God. And what does that mean? Everyone called according to the purpose of God, God foreknew. And everyone He foreknew, He predestined. And everyone He predestined, He called. And everyone He called, He justified. And everyone He justified, He glorified. So the question is, is it possible for anyone that He foreknew to fall through the cracks and not be glorified? No, because everyone that he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called and called, justified and justified, glorified. You see, the believer is in a secure position. Why? Because it's all about the call and the work of God. It's all about God and what God sets out to do, God gets done. Then this summary statement, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And what is the implied answer? No one. If God has chosen, if God has elected, who can stand up against God in that choice, in that election? And then the climax statement, the concluding crescendo of chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds pretty secure to me. Now listen to how he opens up Romans chapter 9. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul doing here? Paul is talking about this overwhelming burden and anguish, compassion in his heart toward whom? Toward his fellow Jews. He's broken inside. He's hurting. In fact, he makes this incredible statement that he could wish that he was accursed under the curse of God instead of under the blessing of God, cut off from Christ. Why? Because as he looks at the Jewish people, he sees that that by vast majority is their situation. And so he is, with the love of Christ burning in his heart, he's broken over them and saying, look at the Jews. The vast majority of them are under the curse of God, bound for hell, cut off from Christ. And then he gives an incredible contrast in verse 4 and 5. Who are they? They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Do you see that tension here? This sad, brutal situation of the Jews is happening to a people who of all the people on the earth are the most privileged of all people. Why? Because they are the people who have the adoption. They're the ones that God adopted, made a part of His own family, chose to make them and bring them into relationship with Him. They are the ones to whom belong the glory, He goes on to say. Think about the nation's history in the Old Testament. I mean, the glory of God dwelt right with the people of Israel above the ark, the Shekinah presence, the bright light of the glory of God. And then in various manifestations through their history, the glory of God would break out over that people. Paul also says that theirs is the covenants. You see, God had established the covenant by his own initiative, he had entered into a covenant with Abraham, called Abraham to himself, said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations on the earth through you. And then he restated and refined that covenant through successive generations with Moses and with David down through the Old Testament. And then what he did through all of those generations is that he gave them the, the promises Actually, I jumped a few there. First of all, the giving of the law. Think about how honored they were. God carved out of the mountain two tablets of stone, and with his finger, he inscribed the Ten Commandments, which were the greatest revelation of God's character on the planet of that day. And he gave them to the people of Israel and said, I'm giving these to you to help guide you to help lead you so that you can govern yourselves through these laws. And then Paul goes on to say, to them was the worship. 
Not only had God given them the law, He gave them the sacrificial system of worship which they could come into the very presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple, that they had a way and a means by which they could have an ongoing relationship with God and then to them belongs the promises. You see, down through the Old Testament, time after time, situation after situation, God made promise after promise after promise to this chosen, elect, special, peculiar people that He had called to Himself. And then, I'll just conclude it with the last statement then comes the greatest statement of honor about the Jew, and that is that God Himself entered into the flesh of humanity and came into the world that He created within the lineage of the Jewish people, born to a Jewish young girl, grew up as a Jewish baby, and then a Jewish man, the actual God in the flesh of the descendant of the Jew. Do you see the tension here? This most privileged people in all the earth, Paul looks at them as he writes this and his heart breaks for them in anguish, deep anguish and compassion pours through his pen as he says, oh, that I could wish that I myself were accursed under the curse of God and cut off from Christ. Why? Because as I look at my fellow kinsmen, that is what they are. Now you say, Brad, how in the world does that prove that 9, chapter 9, fits with chapter 8? Well, consider the elephant that's in the room. I mean, the objection rises up and demands to be answered because Paul has just for an entire chapter over and over again said, man, if you're in Christ, you have this set of promises that are unbreakable, that nothing can change, that are inconquerable. You can be guaranteed that if you're in Christ, you're going to spend eternity in glory in heaven with Him. And the objector could rise up and say, wait a minute, Paul. How can you teach that? God did the same thing to the Jew. He made covenants with them and all of these promises with them. But look at Him now. Look at Him now. They are under the curse of God, the vast majority of that nation, cut off from Christ on their way to hell. How can you say that God keeps His promises? How can we know? I'm talking right here, 2014, September 7th. You see what's in question here? How can we know the truths and the promises of Romans 8 are ours and are guaranteed if we look at the Jew and it looks like the promises of God failed for them. You see, there is something bigger than the Jew at stake. He's just using the Jew as an example and what he wants to do is to make his point with that nation to say this, God's promises have not fallen to the ground. God keeps his promises. So what he does in these three chapters is really contained in capsule form 
in one half of one verse and then expanded for the rest of the three chapters. And the verse is this, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, the first half of that verse. After he shows this incredible conflict between this accursed, cut-off people and their unbelievable privileges, he says that it is not as though the Word of God has failed. In other words, if the objector, the unseen objector here is saying, Paul, has the Word of God failed? Can we believe what you're saying? Paul is saying, no, it has not failed. Regarding the Jews, God's word, God's promises, they have not failed. And I'm going to explain that in a minute, but let me just make this statement. See, what Paul does for the rest of the three chapters is he proves that statement. The word of God has not failed. He's literally going to spend the next three chapters in depth showing how the Word of God has not failed in relationship to the Jew. And if that's true, if that's true, you can also trust that His promises to you, all those listed in the first eight chapters, the incredible set of promises about the security of the believer in the eighth chapter, that they are guaranteed and unconquerable as well. He's going to show that. So what these three chapters are, I'm going to give you a theological term here, that you may or may not have heard, these three chapters are a theodicy. A theodicy. And what that means is this. What Paul is doing here is that he is justifying or defending the righteousness of God. He is going to spend the three chapters showing that God is in fact righteous, that His promises have not failed, His word is true, and He's going to show why God is right in doing what He's doing with the nation of Israel. So, a theodicy, a justification of the ways of God with man, is precisely that. A justification of how God deals with man and why God is right in dealing with man the way that he does. That's what he's going to do for three chapters. So now, what I want to do this morning is give you, in the time that remains, 15 or 20 minutes, I want to give you an overview of chapter 9. You say, Brad, how are you going to do that when you usually spend a a day on a, a verse? Well, I'm just going to try to do a 30,000 foot flyover in an F-22 here. Flow of chapter 9. I'm going to give it to you in three sections. Section number one I've already identified. It begins with an objection. After he has set up the tension in the first five verses, he then states the objection in the first part of verse 6. And the objection or the question is this, has the word of God failed? And so what he's going to do now is he is going to answer the objection in the second part of verse 6. And then in verses 7 down to verse 13, he's going to expand upon the answer and show you why that answer is right. Then he's going to bring up another objection. 
that flows naturally from the first. And then he's going to show you the answer, and then he's going to expand upon the answer. And then toward the end of this chapter, he's going to bring up the third objection, show you the answer, and expand upon it. He follows the same process in each of these three steps. So let's look at them. Objection number one, has the Word of God failed? That's the question. Not just for the Jew, but ultimately what he's trying to drive home here is that he wants you, if you're a believer, to be secure in your position in Christ. He wants you to know that all things work together for the good of you if you've been called according to his purpose. That nothing can separate you from the love of God. He wants you to know that if you're truly saved. And so, how does he begin to prove that the promises of God to the Jews have not failed. Look at the second half of verse 6. Here's his answer. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So it's a really simple statement that simply means this. Paul is saying that God's choice of Israel, the Jews, God's election of them, does not mean that he chose every single blood-born Jew. It just means that he chose some of them, not all of them. Because he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all of Israel is truly Israel. You see, if you think like some of, I'm sure, the objectors that would have been asking this of Paul, particularly the Jews, if they thought that because they were born into the bloodline of Abraham that they were in and they were part of the elect of God, Paul is saying God never promised that. Never did God say that every blood-born Israelite is a part of the chosen of God. And then he is going to expand upon that answer in verses 7 down through verse 13. And he does it by reaching into the Old Testament and using some illustrations from Israel's history that would have held a lot of weight with them if they knew the story. And the first illustration is from Romans chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Not all are, are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are of the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see, Paul is just driving the point home here to show that just because you are a bloodline descendant of Abraham does not mean that you're a part of the promised children. Abraham was the father of both Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the promised child. It's through Isaac that the promises are going to be fulfilled. Then he uses a second illustration. Verses 10 to 13, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow, there's some strong statements in that section of Scripture. First of all, what Paul does here is he just repeats and validates what he has just said in the previous illustration, and that is this, that not every blood-born child of Abraham is truly of the promised lineage of Abraham, of the chosen of God. And he uses a little different scenario here because Isaac and Ishmael had one father, but they had two mothers. And so someone could argue, well, Ishmael wasn't chosen because he wasn't of the lineage or wasn't the offspring of both Abraham and Sarah. And so what Paul does here is he uses another illustration and he goes to the person of Isaac and Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and he says, Isaac and Rebekah had two kids. And those two children, Jacob and Esau, one of them was chosen and one of them was not. Both of them, children of Isaac and Rebekah, one chosen and one not. It seems that some things jump out there He makes some very direct statements about the choosing of Jacob and Esau. He expands the idea here from the first illustration, and here's what he brings in, the election of God. He brings into this discussion the election of God. And what he says here is that God elects based upon his choice, not anything in the one that he chooses. Let me just highlight that for you. I can't take much time this morning. We'll look at this more in detail later. But it says, though, referring to Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, God chose one and not the other. Therefore, God chooses not based upon what a person does or is going to do. God's choice is outside of the person. His election is a free election. It is not dependent upon or influenced by or motivated through what he sees in a person's life or what he sees ahead of time the person will do in their life before they, those two, Jacob and Esau, were born or had done anything good or bad. God made a decision. And Paul says it very explicit that he determined that the older was going to serve the younger. He made a predetermination about one aspect at least of their lives, and that is that the older who should have been over the younger was going to be subservient to the younger. But he doesn't even stop there. He drives the point even deeper when he says this, related to Jacob and Esau, 
that God's choice with them was that in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Do you see that? He is saying explicitly there that what is at play here is the election of God, not something in the individual, but the reason that God chose one and not the other before they were born or had done anything good or bad. The reason, the basis for that was according to the elect purposes of God. And then he even makes it more explicit when he comes down to the end of that and says, not because of works, it's not anything in Jacob and Esau, but because of him who calls. You see, he brings it back to exactly what he was talking about in Romans chapter 8, and that is, it's those who are called according to the purpose of God that are foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. It's all the purposes and the work of God that set that thing in motion and make sure that it moves forward. It's all of God and none of man. And so he reiterates that again after already saying it two or three times. He makes this final statement, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it seems... In my thought process, it seems to me that what Paul is saying, undeniably saying here, is that the basis for election is all in God Himself. He doesn't see Cliff and say, well, Cliff is a little better than Shane, and I'm choosing Cliff. I'm electing Cliff. No, it's not by works. But even more explicitly, it's by Him or because of Him who calls. It's because of Him who calls. It has everything to do with God. The election is grounded exclusively in the person of God Himself. So he states the first objection. Has the word of God failed? Using the Jews as the illustration, the example. Has the word of God failed to them? All the promises in the covenant. And his answer is, no, the word of God has not failed because not everyone within Israel, blood Israel, is the true Israel. And then he explains what that means and he uses these two illustrations from Israel's history to show that God chooses not based upon something in the person, not ethnicity, not family lineage, not some kind of a privilege, but his choice is based exclusively in himself outside of anything within them. So that's kind of section number one, which does this. It brings us to the next objection naturally. It naturally sets up verse 14. Because listen to what Paul says in objection two. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's objection number two. So the thought process goes like this. Okay, Paul, you've said that God's promises to Israel has not failed. 
Because not all of Israel was ever promised to be the true Israel. Not all of them are the chosen, the elect of God. And then you also said that God's election has nothing to do with the person and everything to do with God. So that makes me want to ask you this question, Paul. That sounds like God is unjust. I mean, if God is making a choice of election of choosing somebody that has nothing absolutely whatsoever to do with them, then the way the human mind works is to say or cry, injustice. That's not fair. The only way God could be fair is if God made His determination based upon something in man. Then it would be fair. And folks, that's the way the human mind works. And we work that way because we have this finite mind and this I problem where we're at the center and we have a hard time understanding and getting our mind around an infinite concept of God that He actually can choose us regardless of whether or not we merit the choice or don't merit the choice. That there must be something that He uses in us as a measuring rod to determine whether or not He's going to elect us or not elect us. I think that is just a part of the human condition. It is a hard concept to get around. What we're going to see as we study this in depth is that the faulty issue here is how we would define justice on the part of God or righteousness on the part of God. What would man's definition of righteousness be if we were saying, God, here is what it would mean for you to be righteous? I would say that most of us would immediately give some kind of a definition like this, that the way in which God deals toward us must be that he sees something or doesn't see something in us as a determining factor on how he's going to treat us. And what Paul, in my view, is making so explicit and he's repeating himself and redundantly saying over and over again, it has nothing to do with mankind and everything to do with God. Election is a free sovereign choice by the Creator, unmotivated by, uninfluenced by anything in the individual. And so, what Paul does is he does the same thing that he did last time. He gives an answer and then he illustrates it. And in answer, his answer is the last part of verse 14. The question again, is there injustice on God's part? And his three-word answer here in the, my translation is this, by no means, exclamation point. In other words, emphatically, absolutely not, God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. And now watch how he illustrates this truth. 
in verses 15 to 18, he does the same thing he did before. He reaches back into Israel's past and he uses an example. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He, God, has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Again, Paul overtly, explicitly, redundantly here is stressing the key point of this, that God's electing choice is absolutely free. In other words, absolutely free of any outside influence. It's completely something within Him Self. It is a free, completely free, sovereign choice. God has the right to determine who He extends mercy to and who He judges, whom He hardens and who He lavishes His grace upon. God has the right as the Creator to do that. We'll talk about that in some length in the future, but let me just make this one statement about it. If God, now I really want to ask you this question, if God always acted toward us in absolute justice, how many of us would be saved? Nobody wants to make the noise, but I see some shaking and laughing because it's comical, isn't it? It's absolutely comical. None of us would be saved. I mean, if we got what we truly deserved, what would we get? We would get the wrath of God. Every single one of us. So what we should be shocked about is this. Not that God chooses to extend His mercy on some and not others, but that He chooses to extend His mercy on even one person. That's what should shock us. That should cause us to say, wow, why would He do that? Why would He give His mercy even to one of us? Because none of us deserve it then follows the third objection in the last section that we're going to look at. And it flows naturally and seemingly logical out of the first and second objection. And the third objection is this. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist His will? So here's the thought process. Here's how it develops. Paul, you're saying to us that God elects and that election has nothing to do with us or the individual and everything to do with Him and that when God elects, He secures that person, accomplishes that 
call that He sends out, that effectual call when He decides to save somebody, that call that regenerates and brings them to life and gives them faith and grants them repentance, you know, that call, that regenerating call, if it always accomplishes what it's going to accomplish so that every one of those that God calls gets justified and every one of them that's justified gets glorified, that means that everybody God calls is going to get saved and his election is not based upon us at all, why in the world would he fault us? How in the world can we say no to him? Even if we wanted to, how can we say no? I mean, you see the logic here? Kind of the elephant again in the room? How could God possibly judge us or find fault if his election has nothing to do with us but all of him and his call effectively accomplishes that for which he calls? And here's his answer in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Again, God is God. It rubs against our human nature to think that God has the right to choose his own in his own creation whom he elects and whom he doesn't. Wait a minute, it should be based upon something in me or not in me. That's the only right, fair way. And why would he judge me if his election is something that he does not as a result of my works and that every time he calls, he accomplishes that call through salvation or if he doesn't call, I can't come to him anyway And by the way, isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, none of you can come to me unless the Father calls him. And then he said a few verses later, and everyone that the Father calls will come. And so then he expands upon the answer in verses 21 to 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Do you see the logic of his answer here? I mean, here's the illustration of a potter and he has a big lump of clay and he takes out of that one big lump a chunk of that clay and he puts it on his potter's wheel and he fashions out of that a vessel that's going to be used for very common, ordinary, unglorified purposes. And out of that same lump, he grabs another chunk of that clay and he makes an incredible noble vessel for critical important use out of it and we ask the question doesn't the potter have the right to do that and we say well of course he has the right to do that he's the potter i mean how can the clay rise up and say hey that's not fair that's not fair right i mean that's what he's saying here that's what he's saying here and then he goes on 
and takes it from the potter illustration and comes back to God and said, what if it's like this? Verse 22, what if it's like this? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Ouch. I mean, what if God said, I'm going to reveal my wrath and here's how I'm going to do it. I've got this vessel that I've prepared beforehand for destruction, and I'm going to endure, long suffer with this vessel, and in that process, I'm going to reveal my wrath, i.e., let's go to the person of Pharaoh, right? That's exactly what he did with Pharaoh. He endured through ten plagues this obstinate, hard-hearted man whom Scripture says God was hardening, that He endured with long-suffering that hard-hearted man. What if God does that? In fact, God does that. And then verse 23, I love the connection. In order to. In order to. Make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. You see, what Paul is saying here is the wrath of God isn't the center thing. It's not the great important thing. It is a part of the revelation of the glory of God, His wrath, but that is given so that His mercy can be fully in a greater way, in a more vivid way, in a more fuller understanding that His mercy can be understood by those that He has elected to lavish it upon. So let me show you that in another way. If God had mercy on everyone, there would be something lost in the revelation of the glory of God. Why? Because it's when you see the mercy that you've received as an elect of God against the backdrop of the judgment and wrath of God that you deserve that causes you to go, oh my goodness, why would God do such a thing for me? Why would I deserve that wrath? But look at instead of that black, hopeless eternity in hell, He has lavished His mercy upon me and I become an heir, a joint heir with the very Son of the living God. I'm going to live eternally with Him in glory in a glorified state, ruling with Him forever and ever. Oh my word, I deserve that, but I got this. Oh God, Your name be praised. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, what if this is the way it works? What if the ultimate purpose is the glory of God and the only way that God can fully reveal His glory is that He has to show both His wrath and His mercy? Because just showing the mercy doesn't reveal His glory as fully as it is revealed in contrast to the wrath. So what if this is the true understanding of the righteousness of God? Here's where we're going to go. 
What if this is the true understanding? That God's righteousness means that He always is going to act in such a way that He reveals fully His glory. And what we're going to find as we study is that it's actually the biblical illustration that Paul uses in his quote from Exodus chapter 33, a passage that exactly says that God identifies himself as the God who has mercy on whom he wants and the God who hardens whom he wants, thereby revealing his glory through that process so that his righteousness is really God acting in such a way that his glory is most fully revealed. And the way his glory is most fully revealed is when he both displays his wrath and his mercy. Ultimately, the greatest purpose is for his mercy and for those who are going to receive his mercy. But he puts it against the backdrop of his wrath so that it can be seen for the incredible, beautiful thing that it truly is in all of its splendor. Now, I close with two thoughts here. Just as two more validating points that it truly is a discussion here in Romans chapter 9 as he defends the righteousness of God that it really is a discussion about the free sovereign election of God. Here's point number one. If it wasn't, why would these three objections rise up? I mean, people were listening to Paul and the conclusion was, wait a minute, Paul! I have an objection to that. Sounds to me like what you're saying is this. Sounds to me like what you're saying is that God's word has failed. Objection number one. Sounds to me like what you're saying is that God is unjust. Objection number two. Sounds to me like what you're saying is that God has no right to find fault with us. That's the three objections. Now, why did those objections rise to the surface? Because that is exactly what it looked like from what Paul was teaching. It wasn't just something that somebody arbitrarily fabricated. Oh, I, I'm just going to say Paul is saying this. No, he would preach his gospel and they would rise up and say, wait a minute, objection one, objection two, objection three. They were logical. They were reasonable questions. Now, wouldn't you think if they were simply misunderstanding Paul. This would have been the perfect time for Paul to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God is absolutely free in his election. I'm not saying that. No, he instead said that's exactly what I'm saying. And then he reinforces it and says God has the right to do that. In fact, God has always shown us that that's the way he does it. Abraham's kids, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau, the story of Moses and Pharaoh, God does it that way. The Old Testament proves that he does it that way. You see, the very fact that the objections are there give credence to the fact that what Paul was talking about was the absolutely free and sovereign election of God. And then finally, just want to close 
with Romans chapter 11, the end of this three-chapter treatment, this hotly contested, deeply profound, intellectually stretching section of Scripture. Listen to how he ends and see if this gives further validation to the truth of what I've just been saying. Verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you see the validation there? He gets to the end of this incredibly deep set of subject matters and he has explored them to the best of his ability. But at the end he says, but listen to this, God's ways are bigger than ours. We are never going to fully grasp the infinite nature of the election of God. It is bigger than us. His ways are beyond us fully tracing out. We can get some pictures of it, but for us to say, I'm going to understand this as fully as God does, is us making ourselves God. How inscrutable are His ways. They are higher and greater and more transcendent than us. And so what we should do is fall before Him in humble adoration and say, God, it is true. It is to you and through you and from you that are all things. Not anything in me. Not something that I did to merit myself to you. It is all from you, based upon you, finds its source in you, finds its sustaining in you and will be completed in you and you alone. To you, God, be the glory. See, that just to me validates that that is exactly what he's been talking about here. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I know it's so great potential for that to happen. I am not saying that the person that is saved has no responsibility. We absolutely do. In fact, when we understand what he's done, we need to be living lives passionately of holiness and growth in him. We don't just kick back and say, I'm waiting for glory. No, no. I'd be questioning whether or not you have come in to Christ if that is your attitude. Yes, we're responsible. But it is a responsibility that follows the election and the predestination and the call and the justification. And it's a responsibility that grows on the way to glorification. 